So first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to speak about what is a relatively recent uh, research, and this is the very first time I'm presenting this paper, so I'm very happy for any comments and suggestions that you can give me about how to push this further. The material for this paper has been gathered between 2013 and 2015, so quite recently, uh, with the generous support of the Wingate Foundation uh, and John Fell Fund for Research. Um, so big thanks to them for allowing this work to happen. And today I will speak to you about three concrete sites of violence um, in Burundi and try to trace what has been happening with them over time and especially since the end of the civil war in Burundi, which was marked, it was a very gradual process. Uh, it was marked first in 2000 by the signing of the Arusha Agreement um, and then by increased participation of key belligerents um, in the war in 2003 and then finally in 2009. So in fact, initially, I didn't intend to study sites of violence themselves, but rather came to speak to a diversity of Burundian people and beyond these sites um, about their preferences and expectations vis-a-vis -vis what was very stalled but planned transitional justice process. And by 2013, this has really become the dominant topic or academic debate surrounding the events, trying to really recover people's own preferences vis-a-vis -vis, um, justice versus forgiveness, silence versus um, speaking about the past. But I found that the, the story of the sites themselves became a fresh way perhaps to study the interlocking of memory, commemoration and power um, in this context. And the fate of this materiality, really the mass grave sites and their remains, was in fact quite a useful entry point to our understanding of what has been happening with memory. Uh, in the post-war, we could say twilight zone or, or ambiguous zone, which was characterized by both an official dedication um, to a transitional justice process, but also very much a de facto deadlock, um, blocking any meaningful progress. And um, I will speak more about this. And this was largely attributable to the impunity alliance, the fact that all political, major political actors were involved in a past of violence on all sides of the conflict. So much has been, of course, written about the context where transitional justice processes are ongoing, um, about the nature and politics that surrounds these processes. But we know much less about unofficial commemoration practices, interaction with sites of memory, and the fate of materiality of memory in the absence of a functioning uh, official transitional justice mechanism. And Burundi here is arguably a key case study it's a country with one of the longest running public silences on the past. It runs more than five decades from independence to much after the end of, of the war, we could argue up till today. Hence we are dealing with an unusually long sequence of unaddressed political crimes and cycles of mass violence. Burundi thus remains very much outside of this global rush to commemorate um, atrocities which we have been wit witnessing in the past decades so-called flourishing monument phenomenon. The study thus bypasses the ma mainstream literature and politics of museums, memorial, public statuary to an extent, and the controversies over memory where public commemoration has been launched after war and genocide. The study of the post-wars of the dead in Werbner's famous formulation here is that not so much about appropriating the past for the needs of the present, but about actual materiality, what has been happening, um, what's the visibility, the placement, the arrangements, the care taken um, with regards to, to places of, of memory and violence. 
But of course, despite lack of public commemoration, Burundi is not a place of absent monuments, a term used by Khalili in reference to Palestine. And the paper takes care in glancing sites or looking at sites with very different levels of local engagement and demarcation, all of which nonetheless have faced varied forms of actual or threatened erasure of memory after the war. So using Kenneth Foote's typology, the paper will consider three cases, one of an actually designated site under direct threat of obliteration from above, a so-called rectified site, so site that has been after violence returned to its prior use, um, which is now demanding designation from below by an association. And we will also look at an obliterated site, so the results of indirect effacement. It was never marked before, um, and it's now to be turned to private use. But rather than trying to explain why we have seen this, this stall or this, this continuity of absence, um, I want to explore the concrete, um, both how this kind of labor of suppression has actually proceeded and changed over time, but also to what extent have local communities um, tried to counteract such, such measures. And this will be shown after the war, people struggle against a more perhaps multifaceted, but also more ambiguous um, attack on the past. Glance here through the dislodging of the material indexes of violence. And specifically, we will look at the way in which memorials or um, sites of uh, mass killing struggle against layers of new developmental infrastructural buildup um, and political disincentive. And in the process, the paper hopes to revisit notions of the public secret, the labor of the negative, and a truth as revelation. I should say more about all these terms as they are quite key to the inquiry. In his book, Defacement, and based on his very long study among Colombian communities affected by violence, Michael Tosik offers us interesting analytical tools to study the ways in which um, suppression of memory might work in contexts such as Burundi. Public secret and the labor of the negative essentially refer to negative knowledge, to the process of knowing what not to know. Public secret is that which is generally known but cannot be articulated. So reversing this Foucauldian accent on knowledge as power, Tosik brings our attention to power through public obli oblivion and disarticulation. But as we will see, we need to push Tosik further because while the public secret and the labor of the negative, the law of silence, was indeed quite key to the power of Burundi's regimes prior to the end of the war, the labor of effacing the past has transformed so that there are actually multiple labors of the negative at play today, and these do not necessarily depend on such a negative knowledge as I will show. The labor of the negative continues into the post-war period and the present day in more subtle forms that can be usefully glanced through the placement and misplacement of remains of violence. And these more indirect forms, I would argue, still produce power as the ability to proceed as if not and reproducing the desired state of impunity. So from dense suppression of the past under the one-party ethnocracies of the past, the labor of the negative today proceeds under an ostensible political consent to a process of public retrieval and recognition, but where the past is threatened by lack of de facto protection and articulation. 
And finally, if there is one running line through the whole paper, then it is the, the dictum of Walter Benjamin, namely that truth is not a matter of exposing the secrets, but a revelation that does justice to it. So what ultimately matters is not so much seeing, showing, and knowing, but representing and acknowledging in particular forms and spaces. And I will show how this, this kind of dictum is really validated in three different sides of violence, where at times we see exposure in the most literal sense, the resurfacing of human remains of violence and how these are treated, recognized, marked, or struggle against erasure, symbolic or material. And as I argue, plain public exposure, in fact, might consolidate rather than undermine the labor of the negative and might produce new forms of symbolic violence. But before proceeding to the actual sites, let me just pause briefly and say something about the histories um, of silence and informal commemoration in Burundi and about the actual material landscape uh, of memory. So focusing specifically on what, what, we, what we know, what is out there, mass graves, the dimensions of visibility, mapping, commemorative practice. So across more than four decades and despite the end of the war, the structure of silence and impunity has continued to undermine a public project of commemoration. The memoryscape has been a politicized milieu throughout Burundi's history and we could argue remains so till this day. As a result, often commemorative initiatives have been privatized, informal, and hidden. Despite this broad continuity, we can distinguish between perhaps four distinct phases of memory practice um, during Burundi's independence period, so from 1962 onwards. The first phase from 1960s, or during the 1960s, saw the construction of monuments to heroes, dignitaries, as was common elsewhere uh, in the early nation-building period. But even during this time, politically motivated killings were present, but these were not discussed in public, and there were no major uh, civilian casualties. But the situation changed dramatically in the 1970s. Some of you might know there was a short-lived Hutu rebellion in 1972 in Burundi, which brought on quite a brutal repression by the state against all educated Hutu, which resulted in what Le Marchand famously um, called a selective genocide. And this produced hundreds of thousands of victims. But the mass casualties were quite hidden from view. The bodies were disappeared, dumped in mass graves. The victims of the violence were officially labeled enemies of the state. A complete public silence on the events was imposed. Importantly, even in this climate of suppression during the 1970s and onwards, commemoration didn't disappear, but it was performed privately and unofficially. But it was only decades later, at the dawn of the 1990s, that the Hutu, who were the, the main victims uh, of this repression and genocide, began testing the limits of the possible in words of Le Marchand, in the public sphere, actually. Um, so the repertoire of contention included shaving the heads um, to commemorate the 1972 uh, carnage, peaceful demonstrations, and of course not so peaceful private altercations. But this was nonetheless a very narrow window of opening. The demonstration happened, the big demonstration uh, in 1991 happened just very shortly before, before the Civil War would erode such spaces of possibility. And during this period, um, 70s, 80s, we know that memory work was also 
very much alive and intensified in the space of exile, where it was freed from the constraints, of course, of a repressive regime at home. And the Tanzanian refugee camps, where Hutu refugees gathered, uh, were especially intense in reflection, in production of a Hutu political consciousness, and of course, historical narratives as well. The third phase of memory practice started um, in the early 1990s, um, which of course coincides with the civil war and this produce its, produces its own landscape of violence. During this period, commemorative initiatives were selectively approved by successive governments. Um, and th th of course, those were allowed um, that didn't reflect badly on the government itself. So it was very selective. Um, the government was very selective in allowing certain commemorations and not others. And these initiatives were quite few and far between. As will be demonstrated in greater detail in the two of the, the case studies, Tutsi victims of massacres such as those in Bugendana could be memorialized, whereas Hutu victims of government massacres such as those in Kivyuka were not. Over time, then, there was a gradual shift in Burundi from celebrating great men in the early post-independence period to commemoration of civilian casualties, but the latter was politically inflected. The civil war has also created a competitive victimhood model um, and what some have deplored as ethnicized memory. In line with this, the civil war saw the construction of monument cemeteries restricted to one massacre and one ethnic group. The last phase of memory practice can be dated to the 2000 Arusha peace agreement, which has made a number of provisions for transitional justice, um, as well as commemoration more specifically for the mapping of mass graves, uh, producing lists um, of victims as well as perpetrators and so on. But the progress has been stalled, the process has been politicized, with very few provisions coming into force after more than 15 years. The prevarication from above, however, has been also met with a greater push from below. But the work of local associations has been directly frustrated by the government. Ceremonies have been subject to government authorization and rarely granted. The government has also systematically denied requests for registration of associations, for exhumations or end-of-mourning ceremonies. The public silence in the past has thus continued despite this overt change of course um, and a commitment, over overt commitment to a truth and reconciliation process. So what remains physically? What are the material traces of five decades of political violence defined by disappearance, uh, mass graves and, and, forced si and forced silence? What and where is the physical record um, actually able to register memory for uh, future accountability. In fact, Burundi's landscape is replete with such traces, but these have been often hidden um, beneath the surface. On April 30, 2014, a Burundian civil society group, Amepsi Gira Ubuntu, announced to have identified almost 500 mass graves, and these only pertaining to 1972 victims of the genocide, so not counting in any mass graves related to the civil war itself. Yet a decade after the end of the war, no official mapping of mass graves in Burundi has taken place. These remain unmarked, largely, 
um, and are almost always highly politicized, and I will explain how and why. There is no conclusive figure concerning the number of missing persons or unaccounted victims. This continued lack of public recognition of civilian sites of, of violence, of course, does not mean that these sites have not been revisited, reconstituted, untended. Many have become part of everyday life as markets, fields, courtyards, or environs of public institutions. In some instances, local communities have erected memorials, organized informal commemorations, or struggled for official recognition. But the aim here is equally to uncover the ways in which the labors of the negative has transformed and proceeds, and proceeds after the war. As mentioned before, the indexes to the past that do exist in the landscape are being eroded in multiple in perhaps more subtle ways after the war. Such labor is not always part of a purposeful plan, but rather often the result of lack of any protection or proper mapping, and mixed with political disincentives, which are related to oftentimes the unsavory past to which these sites point to. So one of the techniques, um, more subtle techniques, can be called delinkage. So this is the displacement and disconnect of either commemoration activities or human remains from their spatial, symbolic, temporal reference. So, for example, the request to change dates of commemoration, names of organization, or the resting place of victims' remains, precisely the linkages that bear most meaning, acting to erase the symbolic charge underlying the place or the event. And there's, of course, the redevelopment, which I will look at closely, real clash of materialities which I speak about between the traces of violence on the one hand and then this new developmental infrastructural build-up on the other. And this perhaps offers even a more direct window uh, into these labors of the negative that we see at, place, uh, at play today. But there is in fact a longer practice, uh, this is in, in fact a longer practice in the history, uh, especially the issue of, of the redevelopment, and there are two strains of strategy that emerge. There is purposeful uh, erasure and the inevitable overwriting due to a lack of protection or provision. So already during the 1972 Hutu genocide, large infrastructure we know was layered atop mass graves. And one uh, witness recounts that to make this appear the proofs of the undertaking, some of these mass graves were used or became basis for erecting public infrastructure projects such as Bujumbura International Airport in the capital or the Institute of Agronomic and Zootechnical Research, Iras in Gitega. So such purposeful material cover-up was accompanied by more indirect um, covers, multiple small burial sites became claimed by agriculture. So in order to bring out really this diversity of experiences, I will speak to you about three cases in particular, each with a different history different politics surrounding commemoration. And similarly then the labor of the negative, as we will see, proceeds in a slightly different way in each of these cases. You will see actual physical effacement in the context of urban redevelopment, in the case of Hilbega in Gitega, a threatened symbolic erasure through delinkage in the name of airport construction in Bugandana, and exposure without recognition as a result of accidental exhumations during a major road construction work in Kivyuka. But I think that despite these differences, what each case upholds is this notion that 
what really matters is not exposure itself, and in all of these cases we see powerful exposure exposures is at play, um, whether in the form of actual proof, material proof emerging above the surface, or in the form of more indirect, but no less powerful physical indexes and markers on the body or the landscape, or in the form of voice or resurgent memory. So we see exposure, but what we'll see is what matters to people on the ground is not so much the exposure, but the form of revelation and the form of recognition. And so drawing on this texture of examples, I will again argue that exposure without appropriate revelation can strengthen rather than undermine the labor of the negative and can represent a form of symbolic violence for the affected communities. So this is, this, these photos were taken at the Bugendana IDB, IDB site, which, was, which turned into an informal settlement. It dates back to the start of the civil war in Burundi in the early 1990s. It lies in central Burundi, about an hour's drive from the city of Kitega, and has approximately a thousand inhabitants, the vast majority of whom are the minority Tutsi. The inhabitants are adamant about re refusing to leave the site, despite the sustained pressures from the government to remove them from there. The site is unique in a number of ways. First, it's not only a site of those chased from their hills, as they say, during the violence of the 1990s, uh, which was targeting specifically the Tutsi in retaliation for the killing of the first Hutu democratically elected president in 1993. But a massacre also happened at the site itself um, in July 1996, in which an estimated 300 to 600 people died. The inhabitants really vividly recall the details of this event, which is also corroborated by reports from that time. At daybreak on the day, um, an ibitero, or attack group, of about a thousand men attacked the camp from different directions. The attackers were commanded by the CNDD FDD rebel group, group, one of the key Hutu militias fighting the government at the time, but importantly also one of the major, now the dominant party in power today. The dozen militaries who were guarding the, the camp were easily defeated and the, the, the Ibitero went on killing on a killing rampage across the site. Uh, they were killing indiscriminately, throwing grenades into houses. And because of the physical destruction, the site was moved um, um, just close by, but to a, different, to a different area, close by to its previous um, settlement. So as a result of these quite dramatic events, the Bugendana space exudes a power rarely observed elsewhere. The past has a very strong, effective presence in the lives of its inhabitants. And it comes pouring in from their accounts with urgency and immediacy of a lived present rather than infrequently recovered past. And the materiality of the site itself aids in this process. The settlement spreads around the cemetery and monument for the victims, which is a large wooden cross um, with a memorial inscription surrounded by, by the graveyard. And here then lies the second point of uniqueness. In contrast to most, uh, most other sites of violence in Burundi, Bugendana's massacre has been marked and commemorated. Um, and commemorations have been taking place, in fact, since, uh, since the year when the violence happened in 1996. 
And of course, this ability to, to kindle and preserve memory um, and inscribe it into space can be explained by the politics of the time. Bugandanas were Tutsi victims at a time when uh, a Tutsi-dominated government was in power. The ability to commemorate was, of course, partial, as shown in, in just a while. All but silence has dominated the space of another massacre site perpetrated around the same time of the same magnitude um, but this time at the hands of the government. But Bugendana also saw a reversal of fates after the war when the embattled Tutsi-led government entered into a complex power-sharing agreement with a variety of Hutu armed groups but also smaller Tutsi parties. In a sense the perpetrators were now in power and in fact over time and especially through the 2010 elections, they gained ever-increasing uh, political dominance and control over uh, political space in Burundi. So this then marks another point of uniqueness of the Bugendana site, that those in power see the site and the memorial as quite an undesirable reminder, really an index to their own imbrications in the, in the past of violence. When I visited the site for the first time in 2013, I wanted to gather the, in, the inhabitants' perspectives on transitional justice. But people seemed thoroughly consumed with completely another matter. Um, the alleged pressure put on them to disperse from the site and the threats made by the government to clear the location, including the cemetery and the memorial, ostensibly in the name of development in the area, the construction of a local airport. In a stark contrast to the case of Kibiuka, which will be discussed next, uh, where remains were accidentally unearthed during construction, in Bugendana, infrastructural development directly threatened the displacement of both people and memory by delinking them from space or place. The labor of the negative then proceeds very differently here than in the two cases that follow where actual physical delinkage and displacement has already occurred. People in Bugandana are quite haunted by the spectre um, and intimations of removal. And interviewee after interviewee quite impressed on me their unwillingness to be moved from the site and return, return home to their hills of origin. In a situation where perpetrators still go unpunished in Burundi, the inhabitants felt their security was in danger. So the threats and rumors of removal created quite a powerful state of anxiety and insecurity on the site itself, resurrecting the traumas of the past. The threats of redevelopment exacted their own form of violence then. The labor of the negative showed its full potentiality that much before being executed, and whatever or whether or not executed in the final moment, it was already productive in the present in a sense. Of course, the fate of the cemetery of, of, was of key concern to people, besides the issue of the security back home on the hills of origin. Before they remove us, um, the informal site administrator told me, they have to show us where they take ours, the buried victims of the massacre, because if the cemetery stays here, it is a way to destroy evidence of what they did. We won't leave until they show us where they're taking ours. Local administrator outside the settlement confirmed the redevelopment plan. Despite his admission that one of the reasons people want to stay on, at the site is to be close 
because they lost in the massacre, he said the removal should not be a problem, since it is, quote, lawful to move cemeteries. The process of the linkage was clearly at play. When I came back in April 2015, the Bukindana site and its inhabitants were still there, but so were the lingering fears of displacement and the talk of the airport. The word had it that Abazungu white people came in February 2015 to assess the area for construction. Others suggested that CNDDFTT, the dominant party, held a meeting in the commune recently where they told the population, their supporters, that if they had elected them in the coming elections, 2015 elections, this project of the airport would be concretized. Many people, of course, suspected hidden agendas behind official reasons given for their dispersal and clearance. It is politica, just a political plan, they would tell me. They're invoking it, the airport is a pretext, it is false, a young man suggested to me. I don't think there is any development project, a young girl, supervisor, the local secondary school concluded. It's just a political project to take us out of here. Some of, among the officials, some who will talk to you privately, two boys told me, they would say, to be honest, we want you to leave because of the massacres. It is kind of a reminder. We want these massacres to be forgotten. This government played a role in what happened here, you see. This is why as soon as they come to power, they, as soon as they came to power, they talked about this project of an international airport so that could, they could eliminate these traces so that they would not be held responsible for what happened here. Overall, then, in people's minds, development served a number of purposes as, at once, a threat to some, a promise to others. Political reasons of silencing the past were usefully married political promises to CNDDFDD supporters in the surrounding communities ahead of the 2015 elections. And yet whether the airport's plans were mere threats or whether these were real plans that might indeed materialize one day, they were already productive in their mere potentiality. This idea of an airport, um, people told me, makes us feel powerless and afraid. In Bugendana, then, the labor of the negative proceeds in a slightly different way from its typical phrasing as active not knowing, the not daring to state the obvious. The law of silence does not hold up in this space, which, if anything, is quite unique in the active presence of the past, voiced and marked, etched onto the landscape in the form of the memorial and regular commemorations. But Bugendana also shows us that, that exposure is insufficient if it is not coupled with a strong public system of recognition and protection. The physical reminders of Bugendana are there, but are still lying in a space of precarity. And it is this precarity, the real, real potentiality of erasure, that shows us where the power lies, rather than the law of silence as Tosic would have it. And the clash of materialities here, the undesirable and transient settlement pitched against the desirable and substantive infrastructural development, underlines the vulnerability not only of the sites and its inhabitants, their cemetery, but also the fragility of memory as it is threatened with physical decoupling from space through which it is remembered. As mentioned, Burundi's landscape of memory does not reflect a form of labor of the negative, but rather numerous forms. The Kiviuka site provides here an interesting co contrasting case to that of Bugendana, I think. Um, the Kivyuka settlement lies in northern province of Bubanza and is a site, again, um, of mass killings dating back to the Civil War. 
but the mass graves here have never been officially marked. On May 3, 1996, a vividly remembered massacre took mostly of, of Hutu civilians was perpetrated by the army at the local marketplace. This was a Hutu rebel stronghold at the time, and the massacre was allegedly in retaliation for the rebels' repeated destruction of infrastructure, actually, of electricity towers in the area. At the time, it was coffee season and a market day, but the market remained empty, precisely because of intimations of what would happen or what might come in retaliation for these acts. But the local administrator took the megaphone and called the population to gather in the marketplace in order to deliver a security message. After he retreated, the military surrounded the site, threw a grenade and opened fire on the gathering, killing approximately 350 people in the process. The perpetrators, the military, came back days after the massacre to remove the victims and place them into purpose-made mass graves nearby. Actually, the graves are just on the side uh, of these brand new roads, and I will speak about the roads later on, with absolutely no um, uh, designation or, or demar a marking of, 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 of the past that, um, and of the massacre. So they came back and they removed um, the people from the marketplace. Um, the place fell into disuse, uh, but long after the administration persuaded as the population to use the same place as a market, citing lack of alternatives. So the market of Kiviuka thus became a space where the ordinary and extraordinary came into a transgressive interplay. In the context of an enforced silence on, on the past, a public secret was literally stepped right over, etched into the space through the mundane reuse, coupled with public silence. The public memory proceeded as if not and demonstrated the sort of power Tosik spoke about. The Kibiuka case disposes a stark contrast to Bugandana. In Bugandana, both the people and the remains uh, of victims of the massacre are facing displacement from a site that is suffused with memory to an extent unparalleled in Kibiuka. The Bugandana burial place is separated out, it's marked with a commemorative cross, whereas Kibiuka's victims were never accorded such recognition. After the war, whereas Bugandana's inhabitants live continuously with the fear and, of, and threat of displacement, it is in Kibiuka that remains were actually unearthed accidentally in the process of construction um, and treated in an undignified manner. So while this massacre also took place during the civil war in the 1990s, the victims were Hutu and the perpetrators were the former government. The indiscriminate killings in the marketplace was a counterinsurgency tactic, <coughs> one that we have seen in many places around the world in similar circumstances. It was a retributive act against the action of the then rebels, now actually the dominant party, CNDD, FDD. And today this area lies in the stronghold of the CNDD, FDD party. People here spoke openly of supporting uh, the government in the upcoming elections. Um, and as opposed to the inhabitants of Bukantana who spoke fearfully about the intentions of the president and his government, people here actually referred to Nkurunziza, the president, more intimately as uh, President Peter. But this sort of positioning of the victim as the martyrs of the previous regime 
has not made recognition any easier after the war. Because of political dynamics that I briefly outlined, public <coughs> silence on the past has dominated and defined the space of the Kiviuka massacre before the end of the war, but even after. Why is there such a resistance towards commemoration and unearthing, and unearthing of graves, I asked a local activist. This is the land of mass graves, he said. It becomes an embarrassing question for the government. It sets a precedent, too. If they do it for Kivyuka, voices will rise everywhere. This partially explains it. There is also bad faith, lack of will. The impunity alliance is certainly to blame. The top officials responsible for this particular massacre, people gave me names and positions, are still in the government. And the CNDD FDD party would risk undermining the careful power-sharing accord if they chose partial justice, so according attention to these sort of massacres and not their own. The local association of victims of Kivyuka was formed um, only in 2010. It was and it became the first institutional vehicle to represent the victims and their families. The association was the first to raise concerns about the road construction. It gathered names of victims and attempted annual commemorations. But it faced struggles in this, um, and it would really again highlight the political nature of commemoration, even in a political stronghold area. In 2012, the administration refused permission for a mass to be held at the site. But a form of informal commemoration nonetheless took place and continues to do so um, annually. Also, registration was a difficulty for the association. They only managed to get very local registration permit, not a national registration permit, which um, prevents them from um, raising funds internationally and so on. Kibuka would likely be very little known were it not for quite a powerful controversy related to post-war development and its direct threat to the grave sites. A brand new Bubanza Andorra road, which you can see on, um, on the picture, was projected to run through the middle of Kibuka village, cutting through the grave sites. In 2011, facing pressure from the association, the company Agreed to, by, agreed to bypass um, the graves first, but works then restarted in 2012. And in 2013, human rema remains dating to the massacre we discussed were unearthed. A very quick exhumation ensued, and partial remains of a number of people were just very hastily wrapped in holding banners and placed in 11 wooden boxes without care or ceremony. The exhumation was overseen by local administrators, without the presence, knowledge of, or consultation with survivors or the police. When people in Kivyuka talk about 1995 events, they paint quite a clear and detailed picture of the many eyes set on the cover-up actions of the government. They quite vividly invoke the making of a public secret. They saw exactly what was happening. What features prominently in their narratives is the image of the bulldozer and the truck, the camion bene. So a set of powerful machines coming from outside their community and bound on a very technical task, representing the state's systematic and out, of, out in the open task of mass management of materiality. Arriving days after the massacre, the bulldozers uncovered the bodies from the shallow graves in the marketplace and placed them in two or three mass graves um, graves nearby, where they have stayed ever since without, as I mentioned, official marker or trace. Horrific as the killing itself was, the manner of treatment, 
definitely added to the trauma. So the camion Bennett, the truck, as a potent symbol of systematic math, mass death through disappearance, has of course a longer history in the country, dating to the 1972 Hutu genocide. And the imaginaries of people are really suffused with the image of the truck, as this was oftentimes the last moment when they when the family saw their their relatives being transported uh, away, and it's it is not only death but disappearance of the bodies that haunts people oftentimes, and the track came to symbolize both. So the direct implements, the machinery of violence, today reemerges as machinery of development, but importantly, one that doubles as machinery of more subtle symbolic violence as well. The 2013 Kibiuka events were a parallel and a reversal of history at once. Foreign bulldozers and trucks were coming again from outside people's community, but this time in the context of at least official peace and in the name of integration, of infrastructural development. But what remained was still the careless surfacing of the earth, now not proceeding in the name of direct repression, but rather indirectly in the context of a missing framework for safeguarding and protecting the remains. At the heart of the 2013 controversy was then not so much the exposure of a public secret which was widely known, but the type of the revelation. Local survivors were outraged by what they saw as undignified removal and exhumation. In 2013, the construction company Sojea Satom allegedly wanted to dispose of the remains along with the dust. The local administrators proposed an alternative to bury the victims in a local cemetery. The local association of victims protested. The victims did not die natural deaths and this recognition needed to be etched, inscribed into space. It required a spatial separation and demarcation. To the association, both options represented this continued labor of effacing the past, not in the sense of erasing the remains but materiality, but of their status and memory. The erasure of proper evidence, proof of a painful past, the placement of the remains matter just as it did in Kibiuka. So in the end, the remains were salvaged for quite an uncertain future. They were placed apart and are currently stored at a local secondary school. There is still no sign marking their presence. In a very symbolic gesture, only the local administrator holds the keys to the room. The association's ultimate objective is official commemoration, dignified reprieval, and importantly, preservation of the remains to serve as proof of the past events. Nonetheless, the status remains that of limbo. During my visit in 2015, two years after their exhumation, the coffin still remained locked, with no plans for reburial or memorial construction. So in conclusion, the, the Kibiuka site presents quite a powerful show of the displacements of memory and removal of remains in the name of development. A local activist admitted that the road is necessary because the area is isolated. Nonetheless, and in reference to the urgency of the road construction, the head of the local organization highlighted that development should not be done quote, by flouting the most basic rights. The families of victims felt profoundly disappointed by the act, which only produced further distrust of the government. After all, the people buried here were, quote, martyrs of the CNDDFDD, the dominant party dying in response to their actions during the Civil War. 
Now, paradoxically, the same people are suffering, suffering for the violence um, from the very actors that were meant to symbolize change. So after six years of activism in a government stronghold area, the unearthed Kibiuka victims or remains rest quite unceremoniously behind locked doors without the slightest sign marking their presence. The final short contrasting case is Hilzege on the outskirts of Gitega in central Burundi. This is an example of a labor of the negative in the most literal sense as physical effacement of the past. In 2015, the Hilzege in Gitega was cleared for construction of a brand new urban quarter. In the process of construction work, human remains of men, women, children were unearthed, but these were actually left lying um, on the cleared earth in open view. The Zege was used to be a mixed burial ground. So during the civil war, the local population used the site as a cemetery, but the government and the rebels also used to bury on the site, possibly then commingling the remains and histories of natural and unnatural death. So this very blunt exposure activated actually no protection measures and only very little media attention. The only action taken by the local administration was that through the churches they invited people to have, uh, who have buried their relatives there to relocate them elsewhere. So this kind of privatized displacement of remains had proven all but unviable as most graves were unmarked and people claimed the relocation should be the task of the government. When this happened in 2015, there was no local organization in place to present or to mount protest and to protect the remains. Um, the whereabouts of the remains are unlikely to be properly established um, and the undignified removal reversed. In fact, Hilzege might be the story of many other minor sites of killing and unidentified sites where labor of the negative proceeds without any special premeditation, without much resistance. It might simply be the frictionless happenstance of new build-up and infrastructure rewriting the landscape. Just the previous year, in fact, in November 2014, construction around the brewery prison led to similar accidental unearthing without any procedure for proper treatment, protection, or reburial. But of course we know that something important happened in 2014, so very recently, at the end of 2014, um, we have witnessed what could be seen as a breakthrough in Burundi's transition justice process, the establishment of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Burundi. And the question really is, does this establishment spell a decisive break with the past um, and a, perhaps a different treatment of memory in Burundi? Um, so in December, 2014, the parliament finally elected the 11 commissioners that would form the new TRC. But, however, there are a number of reasons why we need to be quite cautious with our optimism. The TRC is an institution that has been politicized and compromised since its inception. And the recent 2015 crisis has made meaningful progress quite difficult for obvious reasons. So first, the TRC is perceived by civil society, opposition, and international actors as an institution that lacks political independence, and over which the dominant party retains control. And I'm happy to speak more about this um, as we are, I think, running out of time a little bit. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy to speak about 
the composition, the election, and the mandate itself uh, of the transitional uh, of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, and the local and international critique uh, that he has drawn. But second, the TRC, of course, was installed just before a controversial election uh, has plunged the country into an ongoing political crisis about which a number of you might have read, um, and a crisis, importantly, in which the state again is implicated uh, in sort of violent and repressive way. This makes the work, of course, of the Commission difficult. Um, its reputation is more strained, its future is more uncertain. Um, the Commission has officially been in a preparatory stage, but it, it appears truly stranded um, by the political deadlock in Burundi. In addition to these questions arise, even in the case that activity does ultimately pick up, um, the Commission is expected to, mass, to map all mass graves in Burundi, to take measures to protect them, to allow for exhumations and reburials of all of these sites. However, the Commission also, besides the issue of how, how expensive this, this mandate is, the Commission also has a leeway in implementation of its mandate, in selection of events, and sites um, that seeks to pursue in greater depth. And hence questions arise whether, for example, the three sites um, that studied here, will they be likely picked as sites um, that the Commission will investigate? Of course, we know Bugandana points to the dominant party as perpetrators of a massacre. Kibiuka is sensitive as well, though the perpetrators were the former government, they were acting against the instigation of the rebels, now the dominant party, and so on. And Hills again possibly implicates former governments, but is not significant enough uh, to garner proper in-depth investigation from a commission which is faced with hundreds of possible sites. But continuities also persist in other ways, besides just the stall in activity um, and continued impunity. In fact, unmarked mass graves are being produced again in Burundi. The recent political crisis has created its own layers of grievance killings and disappearances that will need to be addressed in the future. But these fall outside of the TRC's mandate completely, so the mandate only covers events up till 2008. So a set of paradoxes then unfolds most recently. On the one hand, the events show clearly that the past the TRC is trying to deal with is far from the past, and yet, secondly, the recent events come to fully overshadow that long past. A quick Google search on exhumations of victims of violence in Burundi returns page after page of recent press coverage revolving around events in and around Bujumbura on December 11, 2015. This day when more than 80 people were killed and disappeared in response to an attack on military installations in what became one of the bloodiest days of the recent crisis. In January 2011, uh, sorry, 2016, Amnesty International has claimed evidence of mass graves in Buringa, which is the outskirts of Bujumbura um, on the photo, allegedly dating to the December 2015 um, crackdown. Satellite imagery, video recordings, as well as witness accounts were all put together to corroborate this and now populate the internet. The UN said it was also analyzing satellite images um, for leads to potential other sites um, of violence. 
So in all of this coverage, there is not even a single reference, interestingly, to a long past violence, to a landscape filled with, with grave sites. And yet the past literally repeats itself in the method of violence, disappearances, and in fact the track as well. The hallmarks of the 1972 genocide re-emerge today. Um, Victims' families are unable to trace, retrieve, bury their dead. The mother of a 15-year-old boy was allegedly shot in the head as he ran to take refuge in Musaga neighborhood, told Amnesty International that a pickup truck from the mayor's office retrieved her son's body. But the man who took the body refused uh, to tell her where the body was being taken. So something else get repl gets replayed in real time too practice of the public secret, knowing what not to know. The graves are not a mystery locally, um, and witnesses exist and speak out sometimes. Um, but oftentimes they do not because, quote, the policemen who were there, that they intim intimidated us. It is a secret between us and the commune, suggested one of the employees of the municipality. The world knows too, and pays attention. Nonetheless, it does so without placing the latest disappeared into a larger historical context, a broader landscape. The tension also clashes with lack of any action on the ground. And this poses to us the pressing question of what sort of truth is being built in the international public, one of exposure of the secrets that we can see, even that being very partial, as I mentioned, or a revelation that also does justice to a violent past. So just by way of very quick conclusion, what can we learn about public memory and commemoration from a case defined by decades of deadlock and inaction on the past. In fact, we can learn quite a lot about the actual ways in which the labor of the negative, the effacement of the past unfolds and is resisted on the ground and how it transforms over time under changed political circumstances. As shown, a repressive strategy has given way to a proliferation of more varied, perhaps more subtle labors of the negative after the war, but with a very recent return to repression, to real repression of crimes. The case of Burundi also urges us to reconsider the links between public secrets, silence, and power. Michael Tosik has invited us to look beyond forms of knowledge to forms of active not knowing, which can be equally productive of power. But the cases studied here show us powerfully a different sort of labor of the negative at play in the post-war period one proceeding not necessarily through public secrets and active silences, but at times despite voice, and despite a more stark exposure of the secret in the form of unearthed remains. The ability to proceed as if not to negate, to undermine memory, might no longer be the product of active suppression, but rather the weight of absence, the lack of protection, procedure in connection to memory, reflective of the broader lack of political will. And I think the clash of materialities those of memory and development reveal this dynamic quite clearly. At the three different sides that we have considered, the inhabitants are quite clear in arguing that what matters is the form of material trace etched onto public recognition. Physical exposure is not enough, it is the matter of revelation. They can only restore power and voice to the victims and their relations. What remains matters, it is present, it is known, at times it is even exposed, and yet it is still remaining to be revealed. Importantly, exposure without revelation is not simply ineffective. It serves to produce and reproduce symbolic violence through the delinkage, displacement, mistreatment, or even effacement of memory that accompany it. 
the future of Burundi sites of violence is, is highly uncertain. And it is compounded not only by the political crisis, but also by the nature of the commission set up to protect them. Thank you.